What are you willing to die for? I'm willing to venture a guess that not many, if any of you, have ever had to really seriously consider that question. But it's an important one. It's even a philosophical one. Because that question, what it does is it forces you to wrestle with what is most important to you. So what are you willing to die for? The way that you answer that question, or a way to answer that question maybe better, is to ask yourself a variation of it. What is more important to me in this life than life itself? But if you were to write something down in your service folders and answer to that question, then the thing that you wrote down, the thing that is more important to you than life itself, is something to which you are ascribing worth. So all of a sudden, this is less of a philosophical question and more of a spiritual question, more of a first commandment, you shall have no other gods kind of question. Because there's a reason why worth and worship sound pretty similar. Do you, do you hear it? Worth, worship? It's because they come from the same root. To ascribe worth to something means that you worship it. And the best way to worship something is to give up your life for it. So what are you willing to die for? We have all sorts of things in this life that are important to us. And if we are willing to give up our lives for someone or something or the things that we have in this life, but we're not willing to give it up for Jesus, then what are you really worshiping? If you're willing to die for work, if you're willing to give up everything and sacrifice your family and your friends and your mental health and your free time, but you're not willing to die for God? And let's be frank and honest about who our God really is. So what are you willing to die for? At this early juncture in the sermon, some of you might have your minds wandering and wondering, well, pastor, there's a good chance that in this country, in my lifetime, I'll never have to give up my life for anything, let alone on account of my faith for Jesus. So what is the, what is the point of listening to and caring about a sermon like this? It's a fair point. Because I had that thought the whole time I was writing this sermon. Why should anybody care? Well, here's the deal. Whether we will have to give up our lives on account of our faith in Jesus, like other people are around the world, well, that's not really the big point of this sermon. Could that happen in, the, in our lifetime? Maybe. But I'm not God and I can't read the future, so I can't tell you for sure that it will. But, but the whole point of this sermon is, is much bigger. Wrestling with a question like this, what are you willing to die for? It forces you to, to wrestle with and evaluate the hierarchy of your heart and, and tries to make sure that you get that hierarchy right. Because if you and I have an upside-down hierarchy, in other words, if there is anything other than the one true God who is reigning and ruling over your heart, well, then you and I end up in a bad place spiritually. And if we are in a bad place spiritually, and then we are faced with a situation where we may be asked, God or life, you choose. Well, an upside-down heart that has a bad hierarchy or a bad order to it will always choose life. It won't choose God. So all of the sudden, a question like this, what am I willing to die for, in a sermon that explores this question through the lens of Daniel chapter 3, becomes more important and more pertinent than maybe any of us even realized. In our first reading for this morning, we encounter three Jewish men, Hananiah, Mishael, 
and Azariah. And last week we talked about the Babylonian captivity, how King Nebuchadnezzar came and laid siege to Jerusalem and tore down her walls and burned her temple and carried off the Jews. And more specifically, Nebuchadnezzar practiced this thing called assimilation by, or conquest by assimilation. What he did was carry off the best and the brightest of the Jews and made them come back to Babylon to serve in his courts. So that when he left and went back to sit on his throne, there was nobody else who could possibly have a rebellion against him. So Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, they were part of this 10% of the best and the brightest of the Jews who were forced to go and serve in the Babylonian courts. They were forced to adopt all of their customs, their culture, the way they dressed, the way they spoke, even down to the way that they shaved. And these three men were also given three new names. Hananiah was given the name Shadrach. Mishael was given the name Meshach. Azariah, the name Abednego. And that change in names is more... Is more um, is more important than you might realize because that showed what they would, the biggest challenge that they would be facing while living in the city of Babylon. Right, their initial Hebrew names were all names that gave glory and honor to the one true God. Hananiah, the Lord is our strength. Mishael, who is like God. Azariah, the Lord is help. But their new Babylonian names were like a slap in the face to God because they didn't give honor and glory to God. Rather, they ascribed worth to Babylonian gods. Right? Shadrach, in the command of Aku, who's one of the Babylonian gods. Meshach, who is like Aku. Abednego, in the service of Nebo, who's the Babylonian god of wisdom. So all of a sudden, you have these three good Jewish men living in an extremely pagan culture. And what's intriguing to me from the very start of this account is that you see right away what these men are not willing to die for. These men are not willing to die for their names. They're not willing to die for their Jewish dress or customs or music or even the way that they speak. None of that mattered to them. It was all ancillary. But what did matter to them, what was most important to them, is what they would be willing to die for. I've already mentioned how, how the king of Babylon, his name was Nebuchadnezzar, and perhaps you hear in that name that Babylonian god Nabu or Nebo. Nebuchadnezzar, in taking that name, it translates the son of the great Nebo. And in the, the bear with me, because this all becomes pretty important. But in the, the pantheon of Babylonian gods, Nebo was kind of second tier. He was, in fact, the son of the king of the gods, a god named Marduk. So by taking the name Nebuchadnezzar, do you see what, what he has, in fact, said to his people? I'm the grandson of the greatest god, the most powerful god that exists. And to show honor to his supposed grandfather, he erects a 90-foot statue to Marduk, this Babylonian god. And he, he gathers all of the courts and the officials, and he tells them for the dedication, here's what you're going to do. The music's going to start playing, and all of you are going to bow down. And if you don't bow down, you'll be thrown into the furnace. So everybody comes. Music plays. Everyone bows down except Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. When Nebuchadnezzar heard this, he was furious. I mean, listen to what he says. Nebuchadnezzar says, Is this true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you don't serve my gods or worship the image of gold I have set up? I'm going to give you another chance. When you hear the music, if you are ready to bow down, good. But if you do not worship it, you will be thrown into the blazing furnace. Then what god will be able to save you from my hand? In that moment, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had to wrestle with that all-important question. 
What am I willing to die for? Fast forward 2,100 years to the church of the Middle Ages and, and you count, encounter a church that had, in essence, lost its way. It was in a dark place spiritually. Now, they weren't to the point where they were worshiping a, a foreign god like, like the Babylonians with Marduk, but what they had done was, in essence, lost the entirety of the gospel. But by the grace of God, God raised up a man named Martin Luther who rediscovered the gospel in its truth and purity. Luther was a man that was often plagued by conscience, and he couldn't reconcile this feeling he had in his heart versus what was actually written in the word of God. He couldn't figure out how, by himself, by what he could offer to God, how he could ever make up for the actions, the sinful actions that he took in this life. But through the gospel, he discovered that man is saved by grace alone, through faith alone, on the basis of scripture alone, in Christ alone, he discovered that a man is not saved by the amount of stuff he offers to God. A man is not saved by paying for a slip of paper that says, son, your sins are forgiven, go and be well fed. A man is not saved by paying for, and yes, you had to pay for this, by paying to go to worship. None of that mattered. What Luther rediscovered is that your salvation, your getting right with God, had everything to do with God himself. So inspired by this beauty of the gospel, Luther writes 95 statements for debate and posts them on the castle church doors in Wittenberg, but he didn't stop there. That was in 1517, and over the course of the next five years, he kept writing and writing and writing and writing until what he had written about the beauty of the gospel and the way the church had lost its way had reached the most powerful men in the world. In 1521, Luther is called to an imperial meeting in a city called Worms. But to be honest, it was more trial than it was meeting. He stood before the most powerful emperor in the world, Charles V, and an emissary to the Pope named Cardinal Cayetan. And he was told by these men, you must recant or else you'll be branded a heretic, which comes with a death sentence. Understand this is no light thing. The men that Luther was standing before carried dizzying amounts of power. I mean, it's hard to even fathom how much power they actually had. I mean, this emissary to the Pope, he is speaking with the authority of the Pope himself, Charles V. He has the largest empire that the world has ever known, stretching east, from the east in Asia all the way to the west, to the Spanish New World. So when Luther stood before these men and was given the option to recant or be branded a heretic, in other words, be put to death, you better believe that he understood the seriousness of what he was being asked to do. And so he asked for a night a night to wrestle with that all-important question, what, what am I willing to die for? It's the same question that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had to wrestle with, isn't it? But they didn't get a night. They had only a moment. But a moment was all they needed to come up with their answer to Nebuchadnezzar. Listen to what they say. Oh, Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this manner. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to save us from it, and he will rescue us from your hand, O king. But even if he does not, we want you to know, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of God you have set up. This sent Nebuchadnezzar into a spiraling rage. I mean, you heard what he did, didn't you? Ordered the furnace to be heated up seven times hotter than it usually is. He had the men tied and bound up, clothes, turban, and all, and had them tossed into the fire. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came to the conclusion that they were not willing to sacrifice their faith. 
that they were in fact willing, willing to die for God. But was Luther? Standing before those men after a night of wrestling with that question, he said to them, and these are words with which you maybe are familiar, unless I am convinced by scripture and plain reason, my conscience is bound to the word of God. It is neither right nor safe to go against conscience. Here I stand. I can do no other. God help me. Amen. Those are words you've probably heard before, at least in passing. But there are words, other words spoken that day with which you are probably not as familiar. Words spoken by the most powerful man in the world in response to Luther's open defiance. I've decided to mobilize everything against Luther. My kingdoms and dominions my friends, my body, my blood, my soul. I mean, when Luther chose not to recant, but rather to stand on the word of God, he knew what it meant. Excommunication, branding as a heretic, and certain death. And yet he could do no other. He could do nothing else but stand on the word of God, his conscience bound to God himself, he determined that he was, in fact, willing to die for God. But why? Why would Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego stand before the most powerful man in the world and not bow down even though they knew it meant death? How could Luther, how could Luther stand before the most powerful men in the world and not recant what he said even though he knew what it would mean? How could he stand there and confidently say, here I stand, I can do no other, God help me, amen. Simply put, it's because they knew their God. They knew that their God was the God who saves. I mean, standing before all those men, Luther knew where his joy and comfort came from. It came from the gospel. And he rediscovered it. And he would say things like, Lord Jesus, you are my righteousness. I am your sin. You came into this world to lay down your life for me. Not because I bought it or earned it because you loved me. You have earned eternal life for me. Luther was so filled with joy and comfort, and so much so that the lies of a pope or the threats of a king would not rob him of this joy. He was so filled with joy that he was willing to lay down his life for Jesus because Jesus laid down his life for him. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego didn't bow their knee to, to Nebuchadnezzar because, well, because they knew. They knew that their God is the God who saves. And they knew that from childhood because they heard the stories, they had their promises, the promises of God were ones to which their heart clung. They knew that their God was the God who rescued their ancestors from the tyrant of Egypt, that their God was the God who guided um, his ancestors through the promised land, that their God was the God who, who gave them that promised land, a land flowing with milk and honey, that even while they were in captivity, that their God was the God who gave them the promises of restoration and renewal, that Israel would be rebuilt and God would be the one to rebuild it. The God of their heart was the God who made that promise to their ancestors, Adam and Eve, to send someone into this world to save them from their sins. And so Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they weren't willing to bow down to a false God. They were, in fact, willing to die for God because they knew the God who saves. And we know, we know how this story ends, right? We know that a flame, a, a fiery furnace would not be their end. And 
In fact, it was quite the opposite, right? Nebuchadnezzar has them bound up and thrown into the furnace. And what does Nebuchadnezzar see? He weeps up from his chair because he doesn't just see three men. He sees four men walking around and none of them are burned up, all of them untied. And Nebuchadnezzar says, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out. And they come out and not a hair on their head is singed, not an article of clothing is scorched. They don't even smell like smoke. And what Nebuchadnezzar says in response to this, I think is absolutely incredible, a testament to the power of the gospel. Even in the hearts of evil men like this, Nebuchadnezzar says, Praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and rescued his servants. They trusted in him and defied the king's command and were willing to give up their lives rather than serve or worship any god except their own. Not only, not only did Nebuchadnezzar preserve Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, but God, through all of this, preserved his word. And now not only was worship of the one true God allowed in this foreign nation, it was actually protected by the king. Praise God for that. And when I hear accounts of heroes of faith like this, of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, or Luther, I'm, I'm given to two feelings. Number one, a feeling of thanksgiving. I'm thankful that God continues to make sure that his everlasting gospel is continuously proclaimed to every tribe and language and nation and people under the sun, even in the face of awful persecution. I'm thankful that God continues to raise up men like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and Luther, whose lives serve as these living testaments to the power of the everlasting gospel. I'm thankful that God continues to use men like this, even in the 21st century, to take that everlasting gospel and to place it in the hands and in the hearts of his dearly chosen children. When I hear accounts of heroes of faith like this, I'm given to two feelings, one of thanksgiving and one of guilt. I feel guilty because my testimony, my confession of faith is not even close to being as bold as the men that we've heard about today. And when I consider the question, what am I willing to die for? Boy, there are a whole lot of things that stand in the way of God being that answer. My work, my family, my life, my savings, my hobbies, my free time, and the list goes on and on and on. What am I willing to die for? Well, I'm reminded of that stanza we just sang at the end of A Mighty Fortress, the last stanza. Should they take our life, goods, honor, child, wife? Boy, when my sinful nature hears that, it screams in agony. Because the last thing that it wants to do is to give up anything that I have in this life. He screams and he says, it's not worth it. It's not worth it at all to give up anything for God, let alone to die for God. It's a sad thing. My testimony is not as bold as Luther's or Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego's, and if I'm speaking frankly, neither is yours. I mean, none of us, none of us really want to give up anything in this life. We're willing to, to die for all sorts of things that we deem important, but, but how many of us shirk and maybe even become uneasy when it comes to, to boldly confessing our faith and sharing it for, for all sorts of people to see? How many people cringe at the idea of having to stand at a, at a doorstep or in a coffee shop or, or in my case, in a, in a barber's chair and tell people about the hope that so fills my heart? I mean, that's, 
that's what happened to me this past week. I'm sitting, in a, I'm sitting getting my hair cut and having a great conversation with the, the woman who's cutting my hair. She tells me she's more spiritual than religious, that, that she was raised in this split family, Muslim and Southern Baptist. She, she grew up in the Southern Baptist church, but walked away because she didn't really like some of the, the fundamentalist issues that were going on there. And I mean, this is just low-hanging fruit that God is giving me. But he has teed this up, and he is asked, he's just saying, swing the bat, and you're going to hit a home run. But I didn't. Because I was more concerned about how good my hair looked rather than boldly confessing Jesus. In that instance, what was more important to me was, was my outward appearance rather than sharing the hope that filled my heart. And what a shameful thing that is. That story right there is indicative of, of why we do what we do. It's indicative, it's, it's the, it shows us why or what the key driver is for what we do or don't do, why we might be willing to give up our life or not for Jesus. And the answer isn't fear, like most people assume. It's what's important to you. If you're willing to give up your life for someone or something else, but not for Jesus, then, then really, what is your God? But this morning, I have, I have really good news for you. That your home in heaven, your eternal standing with Jesus has, is not determined by whether or not you're willing to give up your life for Jesus. Rather, it all depends on whether God was willing to give up his life for you. And the good news, he was, and he did. But Jesus came and he experienced flames far more excruciating than than that of Nebuchadnezzar's furnace. He experienced this excruciating pain of hell to pay for all of your sins. He died the death that you deserve to die so that you wouldn't have to. And because of his death and resurrection, guilt gone, sins forgiven, heaven opened. That is all yours and all because your God loves you. Now with that good news filling your head and your heart, I, I want you to, to consider this question. If Jesus loved Love for me that went all the way to hell and back so fills my heart to the point where it is overflowing. And why have I ever been scared to boldly confess my faith? If this love that went to hell and back for me so fills my heart and washes over me, then why have I ever been scared to die? If the angel of the Lord was with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, giving them courage to stand before the most powerful man in the world, how much more courage should I have in confessing my faith with the king of heaven and earth right there with me in these situations, whispering in my heart of hearts, never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. Never. Lord Jesus, from this moment on, make me bolder. Make all of us bolder in witnessing and confessing our faith like these heroes of faith that we have heard about today. Give me the strength and the help that I need to be willing to lay down my life for you, to die for you, because you first died for me. Second part of the good news, do you want that too? There's a good chance that you'll never have to actually lay down your life for, on account of your faith. We live in a country that has, as one of its founding principles, religious freedom, although you could probably make an argument that that's eroding beneath our feet. But, but today, that point still stands. Living in a country where there's religious freedom means that we don't have to show Jesus you love him by laying down your life. 
said you can show Jesus you love him by living a life that's completely dead to sin. You can show Jesus that you love him by living a life that eschews any sort of temptation that Satan and the world and our sinful nature wants to latch onto. You can, you can live a life by simply boldly confessing the hope that your heart clings to in Jesus, confessing that love for others. You can live a life that simply walks in Jesus' footsteps, that loves his law and meditates on it day and night. A life that lets the word of Christ shine in you and on you and through you in the darkness of this world. 500 years after Luther stood at Berms, here you and I stand. Here you and I stand 2,600 years after Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego stood before Nebuchadnezzar in open defiance. And I want you to realize this. That the promises which gave those three good Jewish men their courage, those promises which gave Luther his courage, are the same promises upon which you and I now stand. Amazing promises. You stand on the promise that, that through Jesus' death and resurrection, the forgiveness of sins is all yours. Not because you earned it or deserved it, but because of his grace because of his arrow pointing down love for you, you stand confidently on the truth that you are saved by grace alone. You stand on the truth that the way that God gives you all of the benefits of his grace is through this faith that he has planted deep in the heart of his human creatures. You stand confidently on the promise that you are saved by faith alone. You stand on the promise that the way in which God delivers these things to you are through his holy and inerrant word, the word that has been passed down through faithful generations of men and women, you stand on the truth that you are saved by Scripture alone. The fact that your eternity, your eternity is solidified by Jesus' death and resurrection is the last promise upon which you stand. The promise that says, eternity is all yours, all yours in Christ alone, full and free. So is Jesus, are these promises, are they worth dying for? Even if they mean losing goods, fame, honor, and wife? The answer always has been and always will be yes. Though all of these be gone, the victory's won. The kingdom's yours forever. Amen.